0: In a most fundamental way, meditation practice can be seen as an investigation of who we are. It's the investigation of our bodies, the breath, sensations of the subtle energies, of movement. It's the investigation of our minds, of thought, of emotion, of the nature of awareness, the nature of consciousness itself, to it's the investigation of silence. My first teacher, Munindraji, gave a well-known three-hour talk on the 21 kinds of silence. It's <laughs> A little ironic. <laughs> So, really, what we're doing is just exploring all of these aspects of ourselves. Now, as has been mentioned, our stories are all quite different. Because we have different backgrounds and different conditioning. But the nature of pain, the nature of happiness, the nature of sadness, of anger, of love, of joy, these are exactly the same now as they were in India in the time of the Buddha. And it's quite amazing to tune in to this level. This is one aspect of why the Dharma is called timeless. Because when we come to the level of the nature of experience, not the content, it's the same for all of us in all time. the understanding of ourselves, automatically and naturally, brings understanding of each other. So there are two perspectives on practice, two perspectives on this investigation, which really support and complement one another. They fulfill each other. The first perspective is that of meditation, or the understanding of meditation, as a science of the mind. The great power of the Buddha's enlightenment was that he saw so clearly just how the mind works. Deep understanding of the nature, the true nature of things. Seeing that our lives are not (coughs) unfolding by chance, they're not unfolding accidentally or haphazardly. There are certain laws at work one that we've mentioned before and really is at the heart of our understanding is the basic law of cause and effect. This is relatively easy to see and understand in the physical world and we're getting some very painful lessons about this in our time. It's becoming increasingly clear that if we do those actions which continue, for example, to pollute the environment, what happens? There are results of those actions. You know, there's holes in the ozone and global warming and toxic wastes and people are less healthy. During the last five years, I've... uh, gone to Nepal a number of times into the Kathmandu Valley. And I had been there maybe 20 or 30 years ago uh, when I was still in the Peace Corps. And at that time, it was an extraordinary, extraordinarily clean and beautiful place. In these last five years, and with each successive visit, the amount of pollution in Kathmandu Valley is getting so horrendous that people are actually walking around with masks because you don't want to breathe the air. And of course this is just, this was a very striking example to me, but it's happening in many places around the world. This is not happening accidentally, it's happening because of causes or conditions. It's the result of actions. And on the other hand, if we take care of the environment, there are other results. So this law of cause and effect is not difficult to see operating in the world. And just like these physical laws of nature, the Buddha described the laws of the mind. He understood what the underlying causes and conditions of suffering were and the underlying causes and conditions of happiness, what leads to freedom. Genuine wisdom, a deepening wisdom, begins to understand the relationship of actions to their consequences. But it's not always obvious, because sometimes we can have a great deal of pleasure or gratification in the moment. You We're know, feeling ease, feeling joyful, feeling happy in the moment, and it actually, at times, be leading to more suffering. And we can see that as, as again, another obvious example, with the great power of addiction. You know, something we do is pleasing in the moment, makes us feel good in the moment, and yet leads to disastrous consequences. And sometimes discomfort in the moment, or pain in the moment, or unease, can actually have very beneficial consequences, like the three-month retreat. (laughs) (laughs) But some other examples of that as well. (laughs) You know, if you think of someone, perhaps, for whom being generous is difficult, they haven't developed that quality, and so there's a lot of struggle in them about being generous, but they do it anyway. So that's somebody who is doing an act that's difficult, that causes them some discomfort, and yet it has good consequences, You know, or different levels of renunciation, which may be difficult in the moment. The Buddha said something very very to the point here, which I think we don't often uh, take into consideration. He talked about two kinds of happiness. One kind of happiness, which is to be avoided, and the other kind of happiness, which is to be pursued usually we kind of lump it all together, not make this discrimination. This is what he said, this is from the uh, long discourses of the Buddha. When I observed that in pursuit of such happiness unwholesome factors increased and wholesome factors decreased, then that happiness is to be avoided. When I observed unwholesome factors decreasing and wholesome ones increasing, then that happiness is to be pursued. So this puts the burden not on whether something makes us feel good or not, but actually what are the factors in mind, what factors are being cultivated. If they're the wholesome factors, they lead to a genuine happiness, to peace, And if they're unwholesome, even if we feel good in the moment, they are the cause of future suffering. So we need to bring some insight, we need to bring some wisdom to our actions with the understanding that they are going to have consequences. We want to be making the right choices. One of the implications of seeing that our lives are a lawful unfolding, in fact one of the meanings of the word dharma is law, or lawfulness, or truth, because it's a lawful unfolding of nature, that means that the dharma path is available, is accessible to us all that we can each undertake this journey of investigation for ourselves. It's not limited to a special few people who somehow have the magic gift. Because what we're doing is exploring the nature. We're exploring the lawfulness of our own lives, our minds, our bodies. And this is why the Buddha's teaching is characterized by that famous, well-known... Uh, word in Pali, which is often chanted, e, hipasiko come and see. It's really that invitation. So meditation as a science of the mind understands the lawfulness and is the encouragement to sharpen or hone the observing power of the mind. so that we can see more deeply, more clearly, into what is actually happening moment to moment. And all the forms, all the techniques, all the methods, are really just tools in the service of this investigation. As a few examples, we use the simplicity Of the form of sitting and walking to help us settle the mind, collect the attention. You know, from the outside, if somebody were looking at the day or just looked at the schedule, sit, walk, sit, walk, a meal or two, sit, walk, sit, walk. From the outside, it looks like not much is happening. And yet, as you know, the simplicity of the form and settling into that reveals exactly how much is happening. You know, in one sitting, in one walking, there's universes happening. So we simplify the form. We use a primary object. You know, it could be sound, it could be the body, it could be the breath. Just some focus, some anchor to settle the attention, to start training the mind. There's a Catholic saint who wrote something very to the point about this, Saint Francis de Sales. He said, if the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back. Though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed." It really points to the universality of the training. We give the mind an object of attention, a basic primary object, and over and over and over again bring it back, bring it back to the point, even if that's all we're doing for the whole of the hour. As we do this, we begin to enter into the first insight of Insight Meditation. Now You may have been wondering just what these insights are. <laughs> well, you've all already had the first one. This is a guarantee, money-back guarantee. Because the very first insight that comes from this simplifying of the form, giving the mind a primary object, bringing the mind back again and again, the very first insight that we have is the very clear, immediate, direct, intimate experience of how often the mind is lost, how often it's distracted. Has anybody not seen this? But I feel very confident in that guarantee. <laughs> don't underestimate the value of seeing this. I mean, you may think it's not important, but this is something, this is a knowledge about our own minds that most people don't have. If you went out on the street and asked the person on the street, does your mind wander? Oh, no, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> People have no idea what their minds are doing until we actually come and sit and begin to observe with a very great simplicity of form, but we begin to look. Oh yeah, this is what my mind is doing. Now we feel a breath or two, and we're giving it a very simple object. This is not complicated. You know, it's not visualizing a hundred thousand deities in different colors. It's like the breath. <laughs> Very basic. And you see how difficult it is. You know, a breath or two or three, and the mind is off and running. It's like we jump on this train of association and it's a wonderful image because that's just what it's like. You know, it's it's on a train. We don't know when we get on. We have no idea where the train is going. And then, you know, 30 seconds, or a minute, or five minutes, or half an hour later, somehow we're deposited at some station, and we can be in a completely different inner environment. What's so amazing is that this tendency of the mind to get caught up, or get distracted, get lost, in thoughts and memories and fantasies. It's not even that they always have to be pleasant. Now, how often do we get lost in unpleasant things, reliving old hurts, you know, old vendettas, judgments, arguments? Not only do they not have to be pleasant, they also don't even have to be true. <laughs> Mark Twain, with his usual great insight, commented that some of the worst things in my life never happened.
1: <laughs>
0: Keep that in mind as you're sitting and just coming out of these trains of association, You know these trains of thought. How much is just this proliferation of imagination much of which is not even true. Sort of like going to a movie theater you know, where they change the movie every 90 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Would you pay to go to that movie? <laughs> 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 but that's what's happening here. You know, as you say, it's one movie after the other. So this first insight into what our minds are actually doing, how we're living our lives, it leads us, when we see it clearly, as you undoubtedly have, it leads us to seeing the value, the importance, the, uh, the essential importance of learning how to stabilize the mind to stabilize the attention, the awareness. Because the worlds that we create in ourselves and around us, the worlds that we create and live in have their origin in our own minds. So what happens? We enter into the simplicity of the form of sitting and walking, sitting and walking. We give the mind a primary object to come back to. Sound, the breath, the body, whatever it is. And slowly the mind gets trained. It starts to stabilize. It starts to steady a bit. And even though the thoughts are still there, or the images, they begin to get a little quieter. They're not so loud. They're not so predominant. They're not so compelling. And there's a growing sense of relief, a growing sense of some inner relaxation, inner letting go, inner stillness. There are a few lines from <coughs> the Tibetan text, The Song of Mahamudra, which describes this uh, sequence. It says, at first a yogi, they feel their mind tumbling like a waterfall, At mid-course, like the Ganges River, it flows on smooth and gentle. And at the end, it becomes one vast great ocean where the lights of sun and mother merge in one. That has to do with the understanding of emptiness. So we stabilize the attention. As we do that, we begin to investigate and understand a very uh, critical meaning of the word sati, which is usually translated as mindfulness. And mindfulness, or sati, is really at the heart of our practice. One meaning of the word which I find very helpful in the application of it to the practice is the meaning of sati, meaning of undistracted. Because when we're undistracted, and when we pay attention to that time, when we're undistracted we begin to see how effortlessly and spontaneously awareness arises. And this is a great great thing to see for ourselves, because we then can stop struggling to create it, to make it happen. It's not difficult to be mindful, it's difficult to remember to be mindful. Just in as, as an example, which you've already experienced many times, you now you're sitting, settled into the body, when you're undistracted and a sound, a sound appears, Is there any problem in being mindful of that sound and being aware of that sound? No. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, do you see how effortlessly, how spontaneously it's appearing? There's nothing we have to do. There's nothing we have to force. There's nothing we have to make or create. And so every time we become distracted, which means lost in thought, lost in some fantasy, where we don't know what's going on. It's simply a question of coming back to this place of awareness. It's already here. Very helpful thing to do in the practice, and one that really opens up many doors of understanding not only our minds in practice but how our lives are unfolding. Notice carefully in your own experience the difference between being lost in thought and being aware of the fact that you're thinking. There are many, there are countless opportunities to do this. because Thoughts are arising much of the time. Take the time to notice the difference in your experience. What's it like when the mind is lost? What's it like when we're aware that we're thinking? The difference is quite amazing. It's like waking up from a dream. It's really a moment of awakening. And please remember, instead of judging the fact that you got lost, delight in that moment of awakening. It really changes the tone, the flavor, the mood of the practice. So every time coming out of a thought, there can be that moment of delight. There's a point here that people often misunderstand about meditation, and it's quite amazing to me because even though it's said very often, I have heard this misunderstanding repeated so many times. So I just want to really clarify this point. Often people have the idea that meditation means not thinking. And if this idea is present, then every time a thought arises, there's going to be a struggle or a judgment. That is incorrect. Meditation is the practice, and it is a practice, of not getting lost in thought. That's what we're practicing. It's not about stopping thinking. It's about being aware when they arise. We're practicing to remain undistracted as thoughts arise. So we can be sitting. Can we be with the thought in the same way that we're with a sound? We're sitting, feeling the body, feeling the breath. A sound appears and we're simply aware of hearing. Thought appears, can we simply be aware thinking? Then there's no problem. There was a great uh, Korean Zen master, I think, of the 11th century. His name was Shinul. Uh, He wrote this wonderful book called Tracing Back the Radiance, which is tracing all experience back to the nature of awareness, the empty nature of the mind. He said, don't be afraid of your thoughts. Only take care, lest your awareness of them is tardy, is slow. Don't be afraid of your thoughts. Only take care lest your awareness of them is tardy. So that's what we're practicing. We're practicing alertness, undistractedness. And in that space, it's allowing everything to come, whatever it may be. Why is this so important? Why give so much emphasis to understanding this difference between being aware of thought and lost in thought. We seem to have lived our lives moderately okay. Actually, it's tremendously significant because most often it's not simply a question of being lost in thought. Very often we're not only lost in them, but also acting them out. And when we look at so many places of suffering in the world,
1: mm-hmm.
0: places of war, of violence, of injustice, of exploitation, of the long lists of suffering, and when we really examine what it is that's happening in those situations, what do we see? It's people acting out the various stories of fear, of hatred, of greed, Of all of these thoughts and feelings in the mind. It has tremendous consequence. And it's not only out there. And this is the great power of a retreat like this, because we have a chance to see all of these things in our own minds. There's one little story which, compared to the things I mentioned, is somewhat trivial, but it points to the pattern. This last spring I was doing a two-month self-retreat. I was, I was sitting in my house, but coming over here every day for lunch. So one day I'm walking in the dining room, going through lunch, and as I'm taking my food, I see a sign in, one of, in front of one of the dishes Moderation, please. And you probably, or perhaps, have had the same experience. For some reason, these signs always seem to appear in front of one's favorite food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, in this case, it was sesame spinach. And there was just this bowl of sesame spinach. And I saw this sign, moderation, please. What I'm going to describe now, I saw in retrospect. I didn't see going into it. Okay, so what happened? I'm going through the line as mindfully as I can. I see the sign, moderation, please. And the first thing that my mind does upon seeing the sign, how much can I take and it still be moderate? (laughs) And that's what I proceeded, that's how much I proceeded to take. You know, as much basically as I thought I could get away with. (laughs) But about Thirty seconds later, you know, as I'm going through the line, this massive guilt attack happened. And the, oh, I took too much and the people behind me, they're going to run out. and So for the whole lunch period, I'm kind of looking over, <laughs> did they get their spinach? <laughs> it was really instructive because now every time I go through that line and I see that sign, moderation please, it's just like a mindfulness bell watch out for what your mind does with this, because the pattern was so clearly revealed. It's not only that we get lost in our thoughts, we often, both on retreat and in our lives, are acting them out. Sometimes with not such great consequences, sometimes with tremendous consequences. So we need to awaken. We need to become aware. Okay, so the second tool of this investigation, you know, this, the meditation as a science of the mind, uh, is slowing down. And this is, again, one of the beauties of the retreat. Your only job for six weeks or three months is to be mindful it's the only thing you have to do and that's sometimes in some of the buddhist texts they talk about buddha fields and i'm not exactly sure what a buddha field is but i think it must be something like this you know where everything is conducive to the practice of awakening that's what the environment is about Can we slow down? Can we really pay attention to what we're doing? Not rushing through things. One example of a kind of level shift in the practice that I found tremendously helpful was when I went from the level of being aware that I was moving, either in walking meditation or just moving throughout the building, When I went from the level of being aware that I was moving to the level of awareness of the sensations of the movement. You see the difference? When I could move my arm and know that I'm moving it, and there's that level of mindfulness, or I could move my arm and feel the tightness, the tension, the pressure, the weight, the heaviness, that's a whole other level. Can you be embodied in this way. Really, as you go through the day, practice feeling the body, feeling the sensations of each of the movements that you make. It takes a quality of care. It takes a quality of interest. Now notice times of rushing. Do you rush through your yogi job? Do you rush when there's some little task to do? Notice that, and then drop back into the body. The time of retreat is this quite amazing opportunity that we have not to skip over things, or to think some things are less important than others. I want to read something about powers of observation, but it's in very small type, so Let's see if I can do this. It's, this was uh, written about uh, the Swiss naturalist Louis Agassiz, and uh, as he was teaching his students, he intended, he said, to teach t- students to see, to observe. And he intended to put the burden of study on them. Study nature, he said, not books. Okay, so the initial interview at an end, Agassiz would ask the student when they would like to begin. The answer was now. The student was immediately presented with a dead fish. Usually a very long-dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen personally selected by the master from one of the wide mouthed jars that lined the shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan. He was to look at the fish, the student was told, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. Samuel Scudder, one of the students, described the experience as one of the most memorable turning points of his life. In 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I might not use a magnifying glass, so instruments, instruments of all kinds were prohibited, my two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly and when toward its close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not, but I saw how little, I see how little I saw before. The day following, having thought of the fish through most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish he announced to Agassiz had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and Agassiz replied, look at your fish. (laughs) In Scudder's case, the lesson lasted a full three days. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction, and the best lesson he ever had, Scudder recalled, a legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy, with which he could not be parted. So we're pretty lucky. (laughs) I mean, this is better than three days of a dead fish. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Can we have that intention, that power of observation at our own mind and body, because this is our life? Can we look at it with that degree of care? Sharon, who will be teaching here the second six weeks, uh, she tells this wonderful story of uh, her first course with Upandita, our first course in 84, uh, where we would go in, and it was very intense, and you know, we would be preparing these interviews, preparing the reports for the interviews, and she would have you know this description of her meditative experience, which was getting you know, more silent and deeper, and she'd go in with this report prepared and she'd bow and she'd begin reporting. report and Upandita would interrupt her, what did you notice when you brushed your teeth? She hadn't noticed. She had nothing to say. He didn't want to hear anything else. So you know, he rang the bell and she left. The next day she came prepared about you know, what she experienced when brushing her teeth. Goes in, bows, has her report ready. What did you experience when you put your shoes on? She hadn't noticed. He didn't want to hear anything else, so she left. That was the end of the interview. <laughs> this went on for weeks. Every day she would come in and he would ask about something else, something else, something else, until, and this is a fantastic training, she was paying attention to everything she was doing. One thing was not more important than another. Can we practice in that way? Not with a sense of straining, not with a sense of struggle. It's being very receptive, very still, very silent. Just receiving each moment, but with attentiveness, not rushing through things. When we practice in this way, our perception of the world is quite transformed. Gary Snyder expressed it uh, just in a few lines. He said, there's a world behind the world we see that is the same world, but more open, more transparent. And that's really the power of our practice, to look carefully enough with enough attentiveness to go beyond our usual either distractedness or conceptualization of what we're experiencing we come right into the experience itself there's nothing else to do here the simplicity of the form of sitting and walking, using a primary object, slowing down, cultivating this kind of observing power, of attentiveness. A third tool of the science of the mind, third tool of that is the mental noting. And you want to use it in a very investigative way. It's really about simply helping us to connect with the object. It's about a simple recognition of what's present. Sometimes people note just at the beginning. Sometimes people cover the experience with the note. Sometimes people uh, note many times, in, 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 out, 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 out. <laughs> Sometimes people use abbreviations. Now in the walking meditation, after a while i just started saying L, M, P. Because the word was too long. This is not, there's nothing ironclad about how to use the noting. Really experiment. And at times you may not need it at all. At times the mind may be quite settled, might quite connected. Let go of the noting. See what happens. Bring it back intermittently. Begin to note some of the subtle mental states. You you may feel quite connected with your experience, but are you noting just the feeling of calm, the feeling of peace, of steadiness? Every once in a while, check in with your mood. Put a note on it. It helps to cut through levels of identification that we might not even know were there. So you want to play with the noting. It's a tool in the service of awareness. We want to investigate, we want to explore, to to actually see the truth of our experience. So we begin to make choices (coughs) in our lives begin to make choices with some discriminating wisdom, rather than simply acting out old habit patterns of conditioning. And not far from here, maybe about an hour or so, uh, is Walden Pond, where Thoreau spent uh, his time experimenting, living in the woods. One One of the things he wrote about that time he said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately and face only the essential facts of life and see if I could learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die discover that I had not lived. This is our own Walden Pond. You know, we come here because we wish to live deliberately and face the essential facts of life and see if we can learn what it has to teach. So all of this is the first perspective on practice, the science of the mind. The second perspective of this exploration is meditation as an art. We begin to see not only what it is that's happening, begin to observe not only what's arising, but we also begin to feel, to intuit, to sense, to understand how we're relating to what's arising. In this sense, meditation really becomes the art of true relationship. And it's quite amazing that what we discover about the nature of relationship in practice, we then begin to apply to relationship in our lives. There are many ways of relating to experience. Now we can be aware of what's happening and be very reactive. We can be aware of what's present, but filled with like and dislike, or judgment, or aversion, or grasping. Or we can be aware of what's happening and be relating from a place of openness, of tranquility, of metta, of compassion. Each moment of our experience is revealing this. Take a very simple situation. How are we with the breath? When you're sitting with the breath, first step is noticing, feeling the breath, observing the sensations of it, but then the art of the practice is to begin to understand how is the mind holding it? How is the mind relating to it? What's the quality of effort that we have? If there's no intentionality or effort to be with the breath at all, then the mind easily slips off. But on the other hand, we can really be efforting, trying to hold on, trying to uh, grasp at it. And so then we become tight, we become tense. Or are we slightly impatient with the breath? I've seen this a lot. Now, with the breath. And I'm with the in-breath in order to get to the out-breath. And I'm with the out-breath in order to have the next in-breath. And it's that toppling forward instead of simply resting in awareness, letting each breath appear as it does. Can you be with the breath the sensations appearing in the same receptive way that you would sound? Can the sensations be like sound appearing? We were simply resting in the awareness and the sensation of the in and out or the rise and fall, it appears. And when we're undistracted, the awareness is spontaneous. We can see clearly the relationship to experience when we're having pain or unpleasant feeling? What is our relationship to painful feeling? There's a lot to learn about this and much opportunity to learn it. we, We relate in so many different ways to things that are unpleasant. we we relate often with self pity we start feeling sorry for ourselves or we start complaining in the mind and i had this a lot I've, I've mentioned this often but it was such a strong experience i've actually had it throughout my meditative career that i must <laughs> I must have been banging a tin drum in some arhant's ear <laughs> because many times in my practice, I've been in situations where there's tremendous noise going on. You know, this happened in India with that the Hindi film music. It happened uh, in Burma with a lot of construction noise. You know, it's like every day, all day long, banging, you know, metal on metal, right outside my window. You know, and I just watch my mind get filled with. Hatred.
1: <laughs>
0: and I go to Upandita, and all he would say was, Did you note it? You know, I said, You don't understand. <laughs> They're banging on metal outside of my window. But I went through a really important process there and seeing that when he said, did you note it, he was actually teaching something extremely important, which is that from the perspective of awareness, it does not matter what the object is. The awareness does not care what the object is. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. That's all, can we note it? It's not noted in terms of making the best of a bad situation, which is how I was interpreting it. It's did you note it, are you aware of that? Can you simply rest in the awareness? Sound, unpleasant sound, unpleasant loud sound, unpleasant loud unremitting sound. (laughs) It doesn't matter. If we could get this one insight, your whole time here will be transformed. It's not about having one experience rather than another. It's about settling back into the awareness of whatever's arising, realizing that sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant, and that's fine. It's simply to be aware. And this is the great power of Vipassana, of mindfulness practice, because there's nothing outside of the practice. Whatever experience we're having is totally fine. If we're exploring or discovering the art of true relationship, can we simply be there for whatever it is? Tremendously liberating. Do we really discover or explore the relationship to the breath, the relationship to painful or unpleasant things? Are we trapping ourselves in reaction? Or can we really rest in that mirror-like wisdom of the mind? What's the relationship that we have to different thoughts and emotions? Really watch this, explore this. Some we get fascinated by. You know, we get caught up and we get seduced by them. Other kinds of thought and emotions we might condemn, you know, or judge or try to get rid of. The art of the practice is the art of true relationship. Just as with the noise, the unpleasant sound, can we open to unpleasant thoughts unpleasant feelings? One of the things that both helps this and comes out of it is that we begin to have uh, a much greater sense of humor about ourselves. When we see all the different reactions in the mind and all the different ways we get caught again and again and again, can we smile? And We're all this package of qualities. One yogi, this was years ago, came in an interview, and his one comment about his practice or his insight was, the thing he discovered the mind has no pride. That was his comment. And we see that when we're watching our own mind, it has no pride, it'll do anything. (laughs) I was on a retreat one time, again with Sayadaw Upandita in Australia, and these retreats are very intense, and everybody's working very hard, and it was really silent. I'm going through the dining room, through the lunch line, and there was one person in front of me. And this person goes to the line. Everything's completely silent. The person takes the person in front of me takes the cover off the pot, puts it on the table. The pot falls to the floor, makes this huge noise, and the first thought in my mind was, "It wasn't me." <laughs> And I'm just watching, (laughs) where did that one come from? But they come, as we all know, you know, all the shades, all, can we smile at it? Can we just sort of lighten up a little bit? What's our relationship to the practice itself? You know, are we caught up in expectations disguised as right effort? You know, we think we're making right effort, but is it really just expectation in disguise? Wanting something to happen? Please remember that we are not practicing for some experience. We're practicing the mind of no clinging. Because whatever experience arises is going to also pass away. So why bother practicing for that? This makes it much simpler, much easier. We free ourselves. We disengage the gears of attachment. So instead of leaning forward with expectation in our practice, with that strain or struggle of wanting something to happen, we settle back. Just settle back with ease. Rest in the awareness of whatever it is that's arising. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. It's fine. Letting it all come and go. It was expressed in one line of the Diamond Sutra. It, just, it expresses the whole practice. Develop a mind which clings to naught. Actually, that's expressed a little off because we don't want to cling to naught. <laughs> develop a mind which does not cling to anything. So as you're sitting with the breath, with sensations, with thoughts, remember that that's what you're practicing. It's not about changing this experience into some other experience. Very freeing to settle back into awareness in that way. when you're in a state of struggle or straining, or you feel yourself in an internal fight or struggle, really sit back, ask yourself the question, what's happening? What's happening here? Because struggle always means that something is going on in the mind or body that we're not accepting. And so what we want to do is just sit back, open up wide, and see what's there. In that moment of seeing, of acceptance, the struggle ends. I just want to say sentence or two, about how this power of investigation, as we bring together this art and science of the mind, understanding the lawfulness of it, and beginning to develop the art of the practice, coming into a true relationship with experience, we begin to discover really the nature of the most basic elements of our experience. What is a thought? This question is completely fascinating to me. Because we have endless, we have endless thoughts. Do we ever stop to investigate to see, well, what is it? What is this phenomenon that has so much power in our lives when we are unaware of them, which drives our lives, and yet when we are aware of them, Are seen to be totally empty of substance. That's quite a trick going on here. Something which is totally empty of substance substance, being the master of our lives. So, what is it? What is this phenomenon? The practice is just to discover, to look again and again, so we come to see the emptiness of it all. What is the nature of awareness? This basic. This basic process of consciousness, it's a tremendous mystery. Because when we look for awareness, there's nothing to find. And yet, it ceaselessly and spontaneously knows, cognizes everything that's arising. It's quite amazing. It's through the development of the science and the art of practice, through the balance of this investigation, that we really cut through to the essential nature of our minds, of our bodies, of our awareness. We really begin to touch the truth of our lives. And this we do for ourselves. I just i like to close with it's, it's something that was written by the leader of an expedition to the Himalayas. I don't know if it was an Everest expedition or not, but that's a good metaphor, in a way, for our practice. written by a a man named W.H. Murray. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events, issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamed would have come their way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do, or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Let's sit for a few minutes.